in the book of Ezekiel tonight. Every week I have a wrestling match. Did I, did I bite off more than I can chew? In 20 years, I only ever stopped one book. I, it was the book of Deuteronomy. I don't know if you've ever caught that. I got up into the, the 40s and I couldn't handle some of the passages pastorally. I could handle them probably in a Bible study better than in preaching. There's a difference it was the only book I ever stopped that I, that I started. And this book, I've been wanting to preach the book of Ezekiel for a long, long time. And um, this is only our sixth sermon, but the scheme is to take a sermon a week. And the way that I think biblically and, and vocationally, this is flying for me. Um, I'm usually looking at the bark. So this is a, we are flying over the trees so it's a historical narrative, and the, narr- the historical narratives run quicker than, say, a doctrinally dense um, New Testament epistle, something like that. That's true. But even for my scheme of things, we are chugging right along. So, and I'm doing that on purpose because a lot of the themes are very, very similar. I'm, I'm trying to keep the sermons from being monotonous. And so not only am I moving the sermons along, trying to get a big picture view of what's going on, because we see, well, running through two-thirds of the book, two-thirds of the book more, three-quarters of the book, we're looking at the general theme of judgment. God's holy God hates sin, especially he hates sin against in, in, in his people. And that's the main theme. So what I'm trying to do to keep from being redundant is I'm looking for sub-themes within the chapter. In last week, we looked at one. Today, what I want to focus in on to keep it somewhat um, unique in each sermon without eisegeting or making the text say something it doesn't say is we're going to look at the sub-theme of idolatry. And for me, that's a way to keep the sermon from be- becoming, just as I say, uh, monotonous. So generally, it's a judgment uh, passage, but we're looking at something uh, different here. God the Holy Spirit focuses in on one particular kind of sin that God finds especially obnoxious, and that is the sin of um, of idolatry. And that's what ch- chapter 6 is all about. But with that said, um, Ezekiel chapter 6, I'll begin to read at verse 1. Remember, as you hear and as I read, this is the very word of our, of our holy God. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face towards the mountains of Israel and prophesy against them and say, Mountain of Israel, listen to the, vow- the word of the Lord God. Thus says the Lord God to the mountains, the hills, the ravines, and the valleys. Behold, I myself am going to bring a sword on you. I will destroy your high places. So your altars will become desolate. Your incense altars will be smashed. I will make your slain fall in front of your idols. I will also lay the dead bodies of the sons of Israel in front of their idols. I will scatter your bones around your altars. And all your dwellings, cities will become wastes. High places will be desolate that your altars may become waste and desolate, your idols may be broken and brought to an end, your incense altars may be cut down, your works may be blotted out, the slain will fall among you, and you will know that I am the Lord. Verse 8. However, I will leave a remnant for you, for you will have those who escape the sword among the nations when you are scattered among the countries, Then those of you who escape will remember me among the nations to which you will be carried captive. 
how I have been hurt by their adulterous hearts, which turned away from me, and by their eyes, which played the harlot after their idols. And they will loathe themselves in their own sight for the evils which they have committed, for all of their abominations. Then they will know that I am the Lord. And I have not said in vain that I would inflict this disaster on them. Thus says the Lord God, Clap your hand, stamp your foot, and say, Alas, because of all the evil abominations of the house of Israel, which will fall by sword, famine, and plague, he who is far off will die by the plague, he who is near will fall by the sword, he who remains and is besieged will die by the famine, thus will I spend my wrath on them. Then you will know that I am the Lord, when their slain are among their idols around their altars, on every high hill, on all the tops of the mountains, under every green tree, under every leafy oak, the places where they offered soothing aroma to their idols. So throughout all their habitations, I will stretch out my hand against them and make the land more desolate and waste than the wilderness towards Dibla. Thus they will know that I am the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious God, this is a a sobering word, a a terrible word, Lord. You are an awe-inspiring God. You are three times holy. Your eyes are too pure to look upon sin with any kind of favor. And we know indeed, Lord, that you have wrath against sin because it's so contrary to you. We pray tonight as your professing people that you would give us contrite hearts and broken spirits that we would be submissive before you and that where we need correction, we would receive it. Where we need reformation, we would receive it. And where, Lord God, we need more faith, which is always, Lord, you would give it to us. Have mercy upon us, Lord God. We thank you that you have placed our sins upon the back and the brow of your blessed Son. Where would we be but for the cross? Surely we'd, we would hear words like we just read. Have mercy upon us, Lord, we pray. Amen. So the book of Ezekiel is is God. We, I think it's Christ on the throne calls Ezekiel to be his preacher. And we know the first number of uh, of prophecies Ezekiel is told to prophesy against Jerusalem, the inhabitants of Judah. The people of uh, Israel have already been taken away to the Assyrian captivity. The people of Judah are about to go away into the Babylonian captivity. Israel is the older sister. Ezekiel is the younger sister. The younger sister has not learned the lessons from watching her older sister get taken away into captivity by God for their sin. And But God keeps sending prophet after prophet after prophet so I admit, these are judgment passages. The modern church is not used to hearing this. The old, they're not used to hearing the Old Testament for that matter. But it's two-thirds of the, the book is the Old Testament. And notwithstanding the judgment passage, what you, you keep finding is God sends prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet, which is really uh, God teaching us that he is so long-suffering. If God acted towards his children, his sinful children, the way that many parents acted towards their kids, we would have been, we would have heard, depart, um, you work of iniquity long ago. There are many fathers and mothers that give their kid one chance and then the hammer comes down. But that's not our God. That is not our God. 
prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet. Even judge, even the proclamation of judgment. Think of when Jonah was preaching judgment to Nineveh. Forty days. Forty days and I'll overthrow. And you'll say, well, that's a judgment sermon. Well, it is a judgment sermon, but it's a mercy sermon. Forty days of mercy, thirty-nine days of mercy, thirty-eight days of mercy, and then the and then the king said, perhaps God will relent, and he'll have mercy, and of course he did. So this is a, a book calling God's men to preach to God's people. God's people have been wayward. I would argue that they're apostate. Many of God's people here, as they were coming out of Egypt, uh, are unbelievers. Read in Hebrews chapter three and Hebrews chapter four. God swore in His wrath that those people coming out of, uh, Egypt, out of Egypt would not enter into his rest, rest. God has no wrath on believers. He only has wrath on unbelievers. That means that among the professing people of God, there are a great many of them that do, do not know God and Christ savingly. And so let me see if I can make a connection between last week's uh, preaching and the entity which um, Ezekiel was to preach to, and now he's, he's changed gears as regards to his audience Ezekiel is God's uh, herald or preacher. In chapter 5, he has one audience. In chapter 6, he has another audience, kind of. In chapter 5, you remember that God told Ezekiel to stand in Jerusalem. It's about to be besieged by the, the Babylonians. And he is called by God to preach against the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And we've said many, many times before from the book of Peter... The judgment begins with the household of God first. So we often think, well, it's the it's the folks that are outside of the Christian church. It's the professing Hindus, the Buddhists, the Muslims. Those are the folks that, that commit the really obnoxious sins. That's not entirely true. Too much is given, much is required. God is especially grieved and incensed against the sins of those in his people, especially when they prove to be hypocrites. And so God tells him to stand in Jerusalem and to preach both verbally and with propositions. He's using words. And then he uses a series of enacted sermons. You remember he's going to go in his house. He's going to lie on one side, lie on another side, bearing the iniquity on one side of Israel, the iniquity of another side for Judah. He's going to be tied up with ropes, all acting out a sermon. And in chapter 5, he's to act out one particular kind of sermon, He's to shave his head bald. Now, I want you to think of this. When you, when you think of Ezekiel, remember we talked about the Ezekiel bread. It's not like how to get healthy bread or anything like that. You can buy it at the store, but that's silly, silly, silly. Don't even spend your money. Ezekiel bread, he's eating just common fare. God is saying, you're no longer going to eat the niceties. You're going to eat common food, and you're going to eat it in starvation portions both for the, the food and the water. So I want you to have a picture of Ezekiel. He's living on starvation portions, he, so he's likely very, very gaunt, and he's got a shaved head. And all of this is part of that enacted out sermon. He's supposed to shave his head and to take his hair and divide it into essentially three portions. He's going to cut it with a sword, he's going to burn it with a fire, and then he's going to scatter it to the wind. All of this is a sermon that's being acted out to the children of Israel. I would argue that the church in the infancy, so he's speaking to them almost in baby language, but they get the picture, and you get the picture. So God is essentially showing them in preaching and the way that he's carrying this out, that what will happen to the inhabitants of Jerusalem 
by the invading army of, uh, of the Babylonians. They're going to be killed by the sword. They're going to be killed by famine. And they're going to be killed by fire. Remember, this is coming upon the people of God for their apostasy from the living God. And God keeps telling the people over and over again, the reason I am bringing these things against you is because you've sinned against me. If we get nothing else from the from the Ezekiel sermon, I hope that we here at Covenant OPC leave this sermon series, and I hope I have this, with a higher view of sin. Many, None of us have the kind of view that God has of sin. This is what God thinks of sin. Not one true Christian hates sin the way that God hates sin. None of us do. That That shows us God's hatred of sin, but it also shows us God's merciful provision for sin. So when God says the reason these sad things are coming upon you, he says it's because of sin. And we can, all of us can quote Romans 6.23, and the wages of sin is what? Go ahead and say it. And the wages of sin is what? It's death. That's exactly right. And like our brother just said, it just rolls off our tongue. But do we really mean it? When we go to think sin, say sin, play with sin, enjoy sin, are we really thinking the divine penalty for what I'm looking at right now is death? Do we really think that? And I would argue that we don't, and I'm not picking on anyone. This is what this is here for. It's written for our instruction, but God keeps bringing that lesson over and over and over again. And if you look at Ezekiel 5 verse 6, Look at where where God is especially offended at a particular kind of sin. He says that you have rebelled against my ordinances and you have uh, abused, you have corrupted my sanctuary. God is, which is why we read the second commandment. Many times for us as Christians, when we think of sin, and I would ask you, what's the most obnoxious sin in the Bible? What would you say? I don't know, murder, uh, infanticide, um, adultery, something like that, homosexuality. And, and I want you to think of all the sins that I just uh, gave as a catalog. What, what portion of the Ten Commandments do they come from? They come from Commandment 5 to 10, the second table of the law. Mostly when we think of a really bad sin, we think of man sinning against another man, right? Isn't that true? <laughs> But when you see God finding a sin especially obnoxious, he hates all sins, but some sins are especially obnoxious in his sight. What sins does he find especially obnoxious? You have defiled my sanctuary. And when we come here, this is the sin of having another God or the sin of committing adultery with a true God. This is the breaking of the first table of the law. I commit to your reading, if you ever get some time, our larger catechism, question 151. We aggravate our sin by the person we sin against. I want you to think of this. If you were to hit a 20-year-old man, you were to punch him, would that be a sin? That would be a sin. If you were to punch a a four-year-old little kiddo, would that be a worse sin? That would be a worse sin. If you were to, to punch a man, that would be a sin. If you were to strike at God, would that be a worse sin? That's a worse sin. And so what we're looking at here is God is showing the people the aggravation of their sins against him because they're directly striking against him. And either they're doing one of two things as we look at the passage. 
they're either breaking the first commandment or they're breaking the first and the second commandment. And the first commandment specifically is, I am the Lord your God. You shall have only one, only one God. They're either having false gods or the second commandment is trying to worship the true God by false means. And I would argue they're, they're actually doing, they're doing both. So God is telling Ezekiel, I want you to preach to my people that they are committing idolatry and the sin of having other gods. And the way that they're doing this is they're obviously adding to the word of God and taking away from the word of God, adding and subtracting to the sacraments. And they're making up their own kind of religion. It's called syncretism. It's a fancy word. When I was raised a Roman Catholic, my wife was raised a Hindu. And when I was converted first, and in the discussions that she and I would have, she would say to me, why can't we study all religions and we'll kind of pick and choose and make our own? That's called syncretism. And that's a sin. God finds that obnoxious. But the people of God were doing exactly that. They're having a little Jehovah religion and they're having a little pagan religion. What did the people of God, the children of God do when they came? As soon as, as, soon as Jehovah liberated them from, from slavery, what did they do? They made a golden calf. And what did they say? This is Jehovah. This is Yahweh. They took a little, a little religion of, of the book, of the revelation, and they joined it with paganism. That's called syncretism. And God says that offends him, which is what we're looking at here. And I would argue this, beloved. There is nothing new under the sun. This goes on in the Christian church today. I want a little Bible religion, and I'll take a little Christianity according to the Bible. And then I like some other stuff that's not according to the Bible, and I'm going to add it. And you know what? God's going to be happy with it. You know why God's going to be happy with it? Because I'm happy with it. You see, we have the order topsy-turvy on the head. And this is what they're doing. They like their false forms of worship, and so they concluded, therefore, God must like it. And if God doesn't like it, their conclusion was he's going to have to lump it. And many, many believers think, because I like something, and I really, really, really approve it, even though it's not in the Bible, God must think it's okay. But that's not the testimony of Scripture. God says, I want you to worship me according to my word. It's the principle of the Protestant Reformation, sola scriptura, applied to worship. Only what God reveals in his word. And what we're looking at in chapter 6 is the children of God were going their own way, and God shows him what shows them and shows us what he thinks of that. And he is angry with it. And so in chapter 5, he's preaching directly against the inhabitants in Jerusalem. And now here in chapter 6, look at verse um, uh, 1, 2, and 3, what, he, he, what he's doing. He now turns his face from preaching at the folks in Jerusalem. And God says, I want you to look over to the mountains and I want you to preach to the mountains. Now get in your mind's eye the topography for Jerusalem. It wasn't really going down to Jerusalem. You had to go up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem was on the plateau in the Judean mountainside. I want to say it's like 2,500. What's that? Half a mile up? 5,000 a mile? Yeah, 5,000 a mile. So it's about half a mile up. So Jerusalem was at a plateau in the Judean mountains. And as you looked out from the city, you're looking at other mountains. And if you've ever seen pictures 
depending on where you're from in America or, or in the world, when I looked at the mountains in the Judean mountainside, I'm like, well, those are not like mountain mountains. I used to camp in the White Mountains in New Hampshire. Those are mountains. My son used to live near Pikes Peak. That's a mountain. These are kind of like big hills. It's look to the hills, that Psalm 121. But that's where we're at. So he's, he's in Jerusalem. He says, look out to the mountainside. All you have to do is look out from the city, and you're looking at all of the surrounding, whether they're big hills or little mountains, whatever they are, and he's preaching to the mountains. Now, I want you to put yourself in the place of the people in Jerusalem. He's been preaching, looking at you, and he's been preaching judgment. You all are sinning against God, and God is going to bring the Babylonians, and he's looking right at you. And all of a sudden, he turns on his heels, and he turns his back to you, and he looks out to the mountains, and he starts preaching to rocks, dirt, and trees. What would you conclude? (laughs) This guy's off his rocker. I told you. Who would listen to Ezekiel? And you remember, they thought a a lot of the people of God thought the prophets were off their rocker. You remember, Isaiah had to go around naked for two years. Again, preaching naked as a picture of your going away into captivity. So this wasn't, these people weren't called reverend. They they didn't have respect. They had zero respect. They would have thought, wait a minute, Ezekiel. So you were preaching to us. Now you're looking at a hill and you're talking to an inanimate object. Yes, that's exactly right. And who told him to preach to a rock? God did. And why did he tell him to preach to a rock? This, again, is a sermon against the people. Because preaching to the people of God was like preaching to a rock. He was getting the same exact response from the people of God, preaching the word of God, as he was getting from a rock. Their hearts are rock-like. Their minds are rock-like. Their affections are rock-like. This is a denunciation from God against their reception of the word of God. I am required to study, to show myself approved, to preach properly to you all. You all are required to study and to work to be a diligent hearer, not just under my ministry. I just mean this generically as you sit under the ministry of the word. The minister is required to preach a certain way and we are required to hear a certain way. So when we hear the word read or preached and it's thus saith the word, what should we do? Speak, Lord, your servant listens. And what were they doing when he was preaching the word of God? Do, 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 do. When will he be quiet so he could do something good? And I totally don't believe a word he has to say. And God says, okie doke, go preach to rocks. You get a better response from a rock. This is a, this is a denunciation of the people for the way that they were hearing the word of God. And how were they hearing it? They were not hearing it. They were not hearing it. Can you imagine being rebuked by God for your lack of reception of the word of God? When I started preaching over in Tallahassee, they used to test me out over there. And there was, there was a kid there. He was like 17, 18, 19. I don't know what it was. I think I triggered him. As soon as I opened my mouth, he, there were tiles on the ceiling. I could see him doing the math, counting the tiles on the ceiling. And if my preaching is a dog, then that's my fault. 
But if I'm ministering the word of God, counting the tiles on the ceiling, you're kind of in deep weeds. This is what, imagine if I said, okie dokie, I'm going to go preach to a rock. What God is showing the people is this. God retains the, God actually evaluates the way that I preach. That was this morning's sermon, preach the word. But God also evaluates the way that we hear the word preached. Let me read to you something from our secondary standard, which I think is an accurate summary of our primary standard. What is required of those that hear the word preached? Now listen to this. Listen to this. It is required of those that hear the word preached that they attend upon it with diligence, preparation, and prayer, examine what they hear by the scriptures, receive the truth with faith, love and meekness, and readiness of mind as the word of God. They meditate on it. They confer of it. They hide it in their hearts and they bring forth the fruit of it in their lives. And this is what's required of us when we hear the word of God, when we read the word of God, that we would receive it as the word of God. And what we find here, when the people of God are about to receive the judgment of God, is they weren't doing any of that. There's a place in the book of Amos, and it says, there's a time coming for a famine in the land. And I think we actually in America have a famine in the land. If you know the passage I'm talking about, it means that not a famine for food. Obviously, we're all, most, myself included, most of us are not having a famine, clearly. But we're having a famine for the Bible. And it's not that a famine for the Bible that we can't buy one. Most of us have 10 Bibles in our house. It's a famine for living on the word, for hearing it, for loving it, for obeying it. And God says, here comes a famine. I'm going to take the Bible away. And what God is saying to the people is he retains the right based on how we receive his word to take it away or not. And we don't think this. We think, well, we're America. We're, this is America. I've got a hundred Bibles at the house. There, there are churches on every corner. Clearly, God would never take away his word uh, from his people. He did here. He took away his people from the temple. He took away his people into captivity. He, he was taking away prophets from them. He, he does here. And so, this is here as instruction for us that we would pray both for the preacher of the word and then we would pray for us as the recipients of the word. But nevertheless, they represent the spiritual, the mountains, the preaching to the mountains represents the spiritual deadness of many of the people in Judea. And they also teach us something else, which is why God says, look at the mountains and I want you to preach against the mountains. The people of God were doing something especially obnoxious. Um, some Christians think that all sin is equal to all sin. That's not true. If you study the Bible, even in the Old Testament, there are, there are crimes that are, are, are capital offenses. If you stole a loaf of bread, that's a, a corporal offense. If you steal a man's life, that's a capital offense. I don't want to get too far afield. But there are some sins which are especially obnoxious, and this is going to be one of them. And not only does preaching to the mountains prove the spiritual deadness of, 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 uh, of Judea, it shows the moral and the, the religious corruption of the people. God tells the people, I know what you're doing in the mountains. I've been looking at what you're doing in the mountains. And we see from, from chapter 6, God says, this is exactly what you've been doing. And what have they been doing? They have been committing spiritual adultery. They have been committing spiritual adultery. They have commit, been committing uh, idolatry. God says through the prophet, tell the people of God, I know that they've been acting like pagans. They're, they've turned away from Jerusalem. 
They've turned away from my Holy of Holies. They've turned away from the mercy seat. They've turned away from the worship of Jehovah according to the word. And they've gone after other gods. And I know about it. What do you think of that? All of us can say, oh yes, I love Jesus. I love God. The God of the Bible is omniscient. He knows everything. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere present. We all say that. How many of us do sin, enjoy sin, look at sin, hear sin, all of those things, thinking, no one's looking. My wife's not here. My husband's not here. The mom's not here. Dad's not here. Preacher's not here. No one's here. And this is what the people of God were doing. We're going to go up on the mountain. We're going to go under the shade tree. We're going to have these pagan altars. And God, through the preaching of his ministers, says, I've been watching you do it the whole time. We say this thing, Coram Deo, before the face of God. R.C. Sproul, Coram Deo, before the face of God. We say it all the time, right? Before the face of God. Everything is before the face of God. You think, if we really believed that God is everywhere present, Jesus is here right now. He walks among the lampstands of his church. If we really believe that, what would that do to our sin life? (laughs) How could we do this? How could you commit spiritual adultery right under the nose of your lawful spouse? You, you, You couldn't do it. And so the people of God have forgotten the nature of the God that they profess to believe. And God, through the ministry of the prophets, says, I've been watching your adultery, your idolatry, the entire time. And we're taught over and over and over again, we serve a, serve a God that is infinite and boundless in all of his manifold perfections. And what God is teaching the people, this is something Matthew Henry has if you want to read an interesting thing in the Matthew Henry commentary on chapter 5, the licentious fellow, the guy who's having moral uncleanness with his stepmother, um, you, you read, read um, Matthew Henry thinks it's an elder. He thinks it's a preacher who does that, actually. And he has a whole section in his commentary. It's very terrifying, uh, at least to me, especially as a Christian minister, it's terrifying. But I remember Matthew Henry says this, Sin will either result in pain or shame in this life or pain and shame in the next life. And what God is telling the people of God, the secret sins that you are enjoying in private, and we commit sin because we like them. It feels good. Somehow it's fleshly. Idolatry is exceedingly fleshly. It's pleasing to our flesh. And what God is telling the people of God, you see that sin that you're enjoying on the sly? Someday I'm going to bring it out into the open. And I'm going to show everyone this is who you are. You're, you're, you're not chased towards Jehovah. You're a spiritual adulterer and you've been up on the mountains with, with every false god under the sun. Many of these things, of course it's a lower motive than love, it's a lower motive than mercy, I understand. But pain and shame can be a legitimate motive to turn from sin and to turn to God in Christ for forgiveness and So the mountains represent the spiritual corruption of Judah. They have been up there, as I've said, breaking the first and or the second commandment. Listen to Jeremiah. He writes in the same historical context. So if you read Ezekiel, you read Daniel, you read Jeremiah, same historical context. You read the book of uh, Lamentation, which is Jeremiah's Lamentation. It's a a death dirge, a, a funeral song. He writes it over Jerusalem, same context. 
Listen to Jeremiah talk about what's going on. Jeremiah 32. This is God talking about, this is his people. He says, they've turned their back to me and not their face, though I taught them, teaching them again and again. They would not listen and receive instruction, but they put detestable things in the house, which is called by my name, to defile it. They built the high places of Baal in the valley of Beth Hinnom to cause their sons and their daughters to pass through the fire of Molech, and which I have not commanded them, nor has it entered my mind that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. This is, this is God telling his people. He's not talking to Hittites. He's not talking to, to, to the Amorites. He's talking to people who say, oh, we love Jehovah. We love Yahweh. This is like me standing up in a Christian church and people say, well, I love Jesus. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And then all of a sudden saying, well, actually, you've not been chased to Christ. You've been following after other gods. What professing Christian wouldn't say, you are going to be finding yourself a new job next week, pastor. I'm not going to stand for this. But this is what he does. He stands up and he accuses the spouse of the Lord with spiritual adultery. That's the accusation. That's what idolatry is. Idolatry is spiritual adultery. And I do want you to think of this. Remember we're talking about how we aggravate our sins or make them more ugly before God? We spoke about it this morning. If you have two single people and they commit um, sexual uncleanness with one another, that's a bad sin. If you have two married people and they're not married to, to one another and they're committing, if they go outside of their covenant and they commit uncleanness, is their sin worse? Yes, their sin is worse. Beloved, they're married to Jehovah. Ezekiel chapter 16. They're married to the Lord and they're running off with their unlawful paramours of these false gods. And God is incensed with it. Which husband that really loved his wife would not be incensed with her running after every unlawful paramour that there is? And this is the Lord. And I want you to, to see something. I don't think you can lose your salvation once you're in Christ. There's no condemnation. You can't expel the Holy Spirit. But it is possible to say that you're in Christ and not be in Christ. And it is possible to fall away in part to apostatize in part, but still yet never finally fall away from Christ. But my point with that is this. Some people think, well, I said the sinner's prayer. Great. I hope you did say the sinner's prayer. And I hope you meant it. I hope you repented of your sins. And I hope you came to Jesus Christ savingly. But God's not going to be trifled with. It's not like say the sinner's prayer and then live in the pig pen of sin. And God is going to go, you know what? That's okay, buttercup. That's okay. Jesus, I, I sent my son to die for sin, and then you can live in your sin? But it's not okay. The Bible shows us the very awful reality of apostasy. Again, true believers cannot lose their salvation, but a lot of the church is filled up with not true believers, which is what they're looking at. What does the Bible say? They were among us, but they were not what? This is New Testament. They were not of us. Read Hebrews chapter 6. Have you read Pilgrim's Progress? Hebrews chapter 6, the guy in the cage, he cannot repent anymore. Why? Because he's been busy drinking. Oh, yeah, Jesus loved the word. Oh, yeah. But he's living in sin, living in sin, living in sin, living in sin. He's an apostate. And this is the danger and the reality of spiritual apostasy. And they're running after false gods. I would ask you this question. Go to some of the bigger mainline denominations. A hundred years ago, what were they? They were rock solid. 
They were Jesus-loving, Bible-loving, holiness-loving. And what are they now? They're this. They're this. No Christ, no gospel, no Bible, no nothing. They're this. What does Ichabod mean? The glory of God has departed. Jesus says they have a name that they live. They have a name that they're Christians, but they're this. They're apostates. So this is very real. I just haven't lost my Calvinist card. I'm still a Calvinist. But this is very, very real. The business of spiritual apostasy. Even in the New Testament, God inspires James to look at the professing Christian church and he says this, you adulteresses, do you not know friendship with the world is what towards God? Many professing Christians We are so busy trying to make ourselves friends with the world. We don't want to be thought as narrow. We don't want to be thought as as stupid or mean-spirited. If you are biblical, if you say Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, guess what unbelievers are going to think about you? That you're stupid and mean-spirited and narrow. They are not going to think highly of you. And Jesus says, beware of people when they think highly of you and speak highly of you because they didn't do that to the prophets. So when we're out trying to make friends with the world... God says, you cannot do that. You're like an adulteress because we belong to him. And so when these people went running after other gods and they tried to worship the true God by false means, God took it as spiritual adultery against him. And it's a possibility now. There are people, uh, what was it, Francis Schaeffer. Go look at Francis Schaeffer's kid. There, There are many people that... They, they start off with the Lord and you go look a, a couple of years later and now they're selling books on why the Bible's not true. They were big name Christians and they were having all sorts of uh, wonderful things and now they no longer believe these things. They're believing in false gods and idols. There's nothing new under the sun. And for the, what's the recourse for us? To take note of this, to, to see that it's a possibility to stay on our knees and to stay close to Christ and to read the Bible. Paul says, not only can we commit, not only can we make false gods out of any, we can worship false gods, we can make a god or we can make an idol out of anything. It doesn't have to be a statue. In the land of my birth, if you drove down the street, it was mostly working class Portuguese and working class Irish. And so we were all Catholics. And if you, (laughs) like 80% of the houses they would take an old white bathtub and they would bury it in the ground and then you paint the inside of it blue and you stick the Virgin Mary in there. So you don't see that here in the South, but where I come from, there's a statue of the Virgin Mary every other, every other house. You will think, well, we're Protestants. We're not going to commit idolatry like that. Oh, really? Really? How about this one? Ephesians. This is a spiritual way or a figurative way to commit idolatry and we do this one. But immorality, listen, immorality or impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper for the saints. There must be no filthiness, silly talk, coarse jesting, which is not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For you know with certainty that no immoral, uses the word porneia, or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater. All of those things, the Holy Spirit says, is a species of idolatry. So the covetousness, the the sensuousness, the immorality, the coarse jesting, God the Holy Spirit says that's idolatry. You're serving your belly. 
you're serving your flesh, you're not worshiping the Lord in spirit and in truth. And then he says, says, and no idolater has any part of the kingdom of God. He preaches that to the church. So both Old Testament and New Testament, God is showing us what he thinks of the sin of having other gods or committing idolatry. He's serious about this business about us living as a chaste bride unto the Lord. Now, Israel had some particular dangers as regards to this, and I want you to think of them. How many people did the Lord in the Old Testament? How many people did God said, you are my people out of all the other people of the earth, only you are my people? Who were those people? It was Israel. So you have Israel is the only people of God, and now they're stuck among a mass of all the other people of God, and all of them worship false gods, and they worship them with forms, with, with corporal forms, with idols. And there's you. And God says, I want you to worship me in spirit and truth. But you're living among a pack of idolaters. What happened to Israel? Hmm. How do you all do that over there? Huh. Boy, that looks neat. How do you all do that over there? Boy, that looks neat too. Hmm. Yeah, the Bible says just spirit and in truth. And he just wants it according to the word and sacrament. But boy, howdy. You all get to drink in your worship? And girls jump up and down in your worship? Boy, that looks fun. Okay, we'll incorporate a little of that into, and I'm thinking of the golden calf. And they, they, they rose up to do what? Play. There was a little bit of immorality involved in there. You read the book of Corinthians. I think there was like 900 or 1,000 temple prostitutes in Corinth. And the people of God said, you know what? This, boy, those Corinthians, they really know how to have religion. That's true religion. They mix in idolatry is always appealing to the flesh Colossians chapter 2 so Bible religion just seems so boring really Bible worship him in spirit and truth can't we do anything pizzazzy that really appeals to my flesh know that if you go that route that is idolatry and God is insane he does not like it it appeals to our flesh And that's what these people were doing. But I also want us to see the dangers of living in a religiously pluralistic society, which is what they have, and we have it. We are called as Christians to be separate, spiritually separate. You know I don't mean commune. If I I could live in a commune and it would work, I would do it. It's not biblical, but it doesn't work. But it doesn't mean separate that way. Here are our people called to be distinct unto Jehovah, but they're living in a religiously pluralistic society, and what has happened to them? They have have succumbed to the... What what does the Bible say? Bad company corrupts what? Good morals. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Bad religious company corrupts good religious doctrine in practice. That's this. And, and, And that's us. I love America. I pray for America. America is not Israel. I think there's a radically different distinction in the Bible between the old epoch and the new epoch, but that's another sermon. I love this country, but we as a Christian church are the frog in the pot. We are the frog in the pot, culturally speaking. When you look around, culturally, our our country preaches and teaches a certain thing, and we unwittingly imbibe that, and we can bring it into the church. Many, many years ago in another church, they had praise dancers. And the praise dancers, if I could judge them, were like from 18 to like high 20s. And they were in lycra bodysuits. 
and they were dancing around in lycra bodysuits at 18 to 20 something. And I said to an elder later, you cannot do this. You cannot have a girl in spandex jumping up and down. You couldn't get another person in that church with a shoehorn. You're going to break the seventh commandment in worship because they thought, well, people like this kind of stuff. Yeah, they like this kind of stuff. They were doing it here. It's obnoxious. But we're the frog in the pot. And so they had a particular dangers. We have the particular dangers. And, 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 and the recourse is not to run away. The recourse is to run on our knees. It's to run to the word. It's to worship in spirit and in truth. And then ultimately, the danger will, the penalty for, for idolatry, we know God's going to bring it. God says, I'm going to smash your idols. I'm gonna, I know what they are. I'm going to smash them. I'm going to take them away. And I'll just say this by way of application. I have had certain idols. Running, trail running used to be an idol of mine, and God took it away. And I can only use, I'm, I'm not going to use myself totally anecdotally, but propositionally from the scripture, if you belong to God and you have an idol, you're tempting God to take it away. And, and he's a good God and he's a loving God and he's going to do it because he's good and loving. But God is telling the people, God, put your idol down because I'm going to rip it out of your hands. Well, I'm not going to put it down. Oh, you're going to put it down. It's so much better if you know you have an idol to say, okay, I'm sorry, Lord. You alone, Lord Jesus, are my head and my husband. I'm putting down my idol. Because if you don't, remember the pain and shame business? He retains the right to take it away. And then God says, I'm going to take away your idol, take away the idolaters. But I do want to end with this. So if you're not guilty of something and someone accuses you of something, what do you usually say? Well, I want justice. I want justice. I want, if you, you have accused me of something and I want you to prove it because I know that I'm innocent. And when you're accused of something and you know you're innocent, don't we become morally indignant? Don't we? I can't believe. I'm a man of my word. I can't believe you're saying that I'm a scallywag. And we become morally indignant, which I, I kind of chuckle at, that any human being would be morally indignant. But we do. But what do you do if you're accused of something and you know you're guilty. Like you know. You know, you know you're guilty, and you know that they know that you know that they know that you're guilty. They have the glossy photo. What do you do if you're guilty? What do you do if God says, hey, I'm going to send my prophet to you. I've been watching you. You're an idolater. I've been watching you. You've been committing spiritual adultery. What do you do if you're guilty? Look at verse 8. I want to end with this. I have a remnant. It's the remnant, beloved. The Bible says in the book of um, Romans, quoting the Old Testament, Though the number of the children of Israel be like the sand of the seashore, only the remnant will be saved. There's a, there, there's a, a, a token remnant 
of mercy. God throughout this judgment book is dropping these crumbs of mercy. You're guilty. You're guilty as sin. You're guilty. All you deserve is judgment. But I'm going to save a, I'm going to save a remnant. Instead of justice, I will have mercy upon you. Beloved, when we are guilty, the only thing we can say is, Thou, son of David, mercy. This whole, I admit, very hard book, in chapter 5, I'm going to have a remnant. In chapter 6, I'm going to have a remnant. Think of Isaiah chapter 6. He says, Isaiah, here I am, Lord, send me. And he says to Isaiah, most of the whole people of God, they're not going to listen to you, but I'm going to have a tenth. I'm going to have a little stump. And the stump is the holy seed of God, is the remnant of God. Beloved, this throws us back on the mercy of God, the mercy of God, the mercy of God. We admit, yes, yes, we are the adulterers. We are the idolaters. I am the man. And what's the hope? The mercy and the grace of Almighty God in Christ. May God be pleased with the preaching of his word.